This is for the action takers, creators, status quo challengers, those in love with the process, hungry for knowledge and questioning everything, here to optimise today and fulfil the potential of tomorrow. Why? Because it's in our nature. Welcome to Project Pure Sport with your hosts, Grayson Hart and James Dollar. This week we are joined by a lady that I found on Instagram probably three or four months ago and I found your content and I was like this stuff really resonates with me, really aligns with pure sport. Your name is Nicole Neuroscience, that's not your official surname I hope, <laughs> but uh, as always we, we let the guest do their own intro because I often have or often butcher it and do them a disservice and say things that I probably shouldn't say, so Nicole, mic is yours. Please introduce yourself. You can go for as long or as short as you want. Cool. Thank you for having me, firstly. So my name's Nicole, obviously. Uh, it's not neuroscience, <laughs> my surname. I uh, studied uh, neuroscience at the University of Bristol. I did my research in synaptic plasticity. I looked at how we can incorporate that into mindset change, which is what sort of uh, served as a springboard into working into corporates and with corporate, sorry, and individuals on how to change their mind. I suppose I, I um, have a lot of people that come to me with problems with like, they have these repetitive narratives that they repeat to themselves and it sort of dictates their entire life by something that's so simple as what their parents told them when they were children. And it is basically transpired into the rest of their life. So I love looking at that and helping people change those narratives. I now work with individuals in and corporates as well on an individual basis on basically science-based optimization. So how can we work with marginal gains to create compound sort of uh, outcomes to well-being, performance, cognitive performance, and decision-making? That's pretty smart stuff. That's some pretty impressive scientific stuff. What Nicole, one of the things I've been really drawn to and love about how you express the science is you bring a relatable element to everyday life. Um, and what I feel in you, there's like a depth that you're utilizing the science and the data and, and this knowledge to help inform people in a, in a way that's really relatable on how they can, in, in my you know, simple, humble way of describing it, be happier and, and live a nicer life. Has there been something along the way in your own journey that got you thinking in that way? Like, did you overcome some type of challenges or mindsets or circumstances that, that have allowed you to be coming from that place? And I ask that because I feel there are some people that like just really stay embedded only in the science and they forget the like the relatable human element. And I feel a strength yours is combining the two. I'd love to know, you know, where have you thought about where that's come from? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, I had a, a very questionable upbringing. Um, I lost both my father and my stepfather. So, uh, and I was sort of, it was a very turbulent household with uh, addiction and mental health. So my childhood was not the best. And I carried a lot of those things into my adult years. I guess that's kind of where I got my mind to change from. And I was sort of repeating patterns that my mother had been doing. And I think I went into therapy once and someone said that and I was like oh my god yeah I am and I think guess that's sort of like it wasn't a trajectory because I was already studying neuroscience at the time but I was so deeply fascinated by how such small things can impact your life so I guess I've changed a lot like I think if anyone had to meet me now I mean obviously I'm still the same person I'm still hilarious uh, <laughs> as fuck <laughs> We'll put some screenshots up of the WhatsApp conversations so we can, <laughs> we can be testament to that. But I think my confidence levels have like soared because obviously I was quite codependent in like relationships, friendships, and definitely friendships as well, um, which I am definitely not anymore. So yeah, I guess, yeah, de definitely a very big personal journey of mine from 
where I've come from to where I am now. If if you were to try, I'm going to put you on the spot here. Um, if you were to try and come up with three key elements of mindset or lifestyle shifts that you've learned that have been so impactful for yourself that are potentially backed up by some of the amazing scientific knowledge that you've gained, what what would those top three things be? One of the things I always talk about is, so if brain health is your hardware and mental health is your software, you can't change your mindset, you can't change your mental health if you haven't got the physical physiological mechanisms and sort of foundations that are underpinning change working. So things like sleep, hydration, nutrition, just taking care of yourself, putting yourself in environments where you actually have the chance to change and heal or whatever uh, journey you're on. So that needs to be ticked first, right? So um, I was drinking quite a lot when I was in London. I was partying quite a lot when I lived here. And that's not really a place where you can then decide, oh, we're actually going to change as a person. And it's not really a decision I made anyway. But you see what I mean? So if if you've got sort of stress information and the, the the mechanisms that underlie that aren't working properly, then that's going to heavily implicate where your mental health is. So it's, it's almost like in order to truly make meaningful change, there, there has to be some feeling or knowledge within you that's not just about the circumstance or thing you're trying to change. It's almost like how how can I change this? Because I, I think there are a lot of people that potentially understand that they're maybe acting in ways or have habits or lifestyles that aren't necessarily op- the best for optimal happiness, productivity, um, health. And they and people try change things circumstantially. But And then again, I can relate to my own experience. If I go to a deeper level of like, why that's so important to to make those changes it it brings about the how but to make more sense is that is that in line with sort of your your view of things yeah yeah i think so i think i've lost my train of thought but what was i going to say i think people also don't realize how important the, the even just the seed that you plant okay, actually, I'm doing this particular thing, and it's not great, I want to change that. Even just having that acknowledgement towards that can already have a cascade mechanism towards or like an effect on changing, because now every time you do it, you'll start being more aware of it, more aware of it. And if you don't have the seed planted, nothing's going to grow, right? So people want these like drastic like ways on how to change. But I think just simplifying it all the way back down to getting your physiology physiology functioning properly and then also planting that seed. Okay, actually, I don't like this particular thing, but knowing that you can change it means that you might end up on a different trajectory without even realizing it. Five years down the line, you might actually be having changed that thing. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, like rewiring. I heard you speaking recently about, and, and some people misconstrued the terminology, but that the brain is plastic. Um, it'll be cool to get your view, like like a breakdown of that, because you know we utilize or we we have a connotation of what that means, plastic, like actual like plastic, but PVC. The side, yeah, <laughs> it, it, I, I found that really cool. To and it's probably something so simple in your kind of vocabulary and perspective in neuroscience, but it'd be cool to for you to give that explanation of what it means that the brain is plastic. So yeah, the the brain meaning plastic doesn't mean that it's actually like PVC plastic. But I had a good laugh at you <laughs> responding to a few people. To <laughs> but it basically means that it's malleable, so it's capable of change. So it's not only capable of change, but the brain was actually designed to change, which is like mind-blowing to me. So when you are born, you are born with X amount of neurons. When you reach about age 25, you have the same amount of neurons. The only thing that changes is the amount of synapses, the connections. So everything that you perceive as a child as you're growing is going to then have an effect on how the brain wires itself towards a different, uh, towards another neuron. So somatosensory input comes in, it then tells you that the specific thing needs to be ingrained in in the brain. So we do that through sight, through 
feeling, through smelling, through tasting. That's how we learn about the world. When we're young, we're like sponges. We pretty much take up everything. And that's why developmental plasticity is so vitally important for growing children. And then when we eat, reach about age sort of between 23, 25, we, we stop developing. So, so the developmental plasticity stops at such a great rate, if you will. But we can still change. It just means that we need a little bit more attention and intention. So we can still make changes. We just have to put a little bit more effort in. And I think that's the wonderful thing because we never really knew that up until recently, about the 90s, we started realizing that actually plastic change can happen even in adulthood because we thought that once we were matured, that we were stuck. And even people in their 40s, 50, they think, oh, I'm just wired this way. And I get that a lot. People say, oh, I'm just wired this way. This is the way I am. It doesn't have to be. It's probably that way because you were designed by the things around you, your parents, the interaction that you had, the schooling, your friends, to be a particular way but it doesn't have to be like that. And I think a lot of people are subjected to uh, environments that maybe aren't the best, that give them the best possible outcomes. But knowing that they can change that is great. Because I have a lot of clients who will say to me things like, I have one client who never went to university and never studied. She's a housewife and she said that she always says that her parents told her she wasn't very smart. Mm -hmm. And she went through a whole life, she's in her 50s with children believing that she wasn't smart enough to go through education. And she has like a fear around taking exams. And that's wild. Is there a particular way, um, things you can incorporate into your life, whether that be um, types of activities or things through nutrition and diet, but are there also ways of like particular types of learning that are better for increasing the plasticity or holding on to the plasticity through your 20s and 30s? Not types of learning, I guess. Yeah, to some extent there is, but making sure, again, that the physiology is working. So nutrition, exercise. So exercise, we've spoken about this before, increases BDNF. Lion's mane increases BDNF. So BDNF is a key molecule in ensuring these, these synapses create new synaptic connections. It's called synaptogenesis. So, again, providing that environment for the synapses to be able to change, great. Uh, nutrition is always going to be great. But sleep is probably the best way to actually consolidate memory so making sure that you're getting eight hours of sleep eight to nine hours seven and a half to nine hours of sleep is vitally important for memory consolidation so if you want to retain information it's important to incorporate that things like non-sleep deep breaths so like meditation anything that's going to help your brain waves recover because you can get into that memory consolidation state otherwise if you're like if you're depleted of energy resources you're not going to be able to consolidate memory because the brain is just going to be focused on actually recovering from the day's work rather than actually retaining any information if it needs to. The other thing is making sure that you have attention and intention. So I talk about this almost on every podcast I go on, but you can't essentially put on a French tape in the background and expect to learn it. Okay, You have to pay attention to the words. So that is a C-tail codeine. You listening to the frequency of my voice means that you are sending a acetylcholine to your auditory cortex to zone in on my words. But you could, in theory, pay attention to any of the sounds outside. I mean, we don't have any at the moment, but if you had to have birds or sirens, you could be listening to that instead of me. And that's the same concept as people who maybe scroll on Instagram while they're in a lecture or people who are trying to learn French in the background. It's not really, you have to pay attention. So making sure that you are, yeah, I guess maybe even like having uh, sort of like, visualizations or meditations affirmations they, they do work because it's just reminding you that this is the thing you want to change on a daily basis that's also why coaches work you know someone that you can check in with accountability to remind you because mental heuristics are essentially mental shortcuts so 90 percent, 90 to 95 percent of our brain operates on a subconscious level and if it can it will take shortcuts so if you've been doing a particular behavior or habit or gesture or body language in a particular way, as, unless you say to yourself, we need to change this, you will most probably carry on doing that. But if you're tired, if you don't think about it, you will automatically revert to what it knows best, which is what you've been repeating over the years, which is that particular behavior, that particular habit, that particular gesture. So for example, if you, I don't know, say you wanna start switching the light on with your left hand instead of your right, but you always use your right, if you don't think about it, you're going to probably do it with your 
but I can't remember what I said, but right hand instead, you see? And that transpires into how we operate on a behavioral level as well. So you have to put in the intention every day to make that change until that becomes part of your subconscious, yeah. you know? I, I heard this um, Harvard scientist dude speaking about something that, that I found really interesting. Um, he's And it was about how the brain works, so it's totally related to your expertise, Nicole. And, and, and what you're saying is, Everyone can relate to that experience in life where like, say you get a new car or you get a new pair of shoes and then all of a sudden it's like, you see that car or pair of shoes all over, everywhere. And he said, and he obviously explained in much more scientific um, terms than I'm going to hear, but he pretty much said like, the brain works in a way that what you actually like give your attention to, it then begins to notice and become aware of around it. And the reason he was explaining this was in context to goal setting. And I've been someone that kind of understands the meaning of goal setting, but I've also kind of got sick of it because it's become a bit of a just like this concept. And then, but for for me, I feel to understand how something works rather than it just being a concept makes it so much more impactful. So when he spoke about this and and then he related it to goal setting, he said, if you have an intention uh, that you write down as a goal and you actually look at that goal and visualize that goal and like write it down on paper on a regular basis and think about it, your brain starts to work in the same way that it does around those that new car and the shoes where you start seeing it. Because your brain is consciously aware of it, it starts to create it as its reality. And then I was like, okay, I got sick of goal setting as a concept, but now I understand how it works. It's so much more meaningful to me. And I think that's why it's so important, like what you're doing in your role is like, because someone could say, oh, you're a neuroscientist. It doesn't, I don't care for the science, but it's actually getting people to understand not, not just things as concepts, it's like how, so that we can then implement it from a place of knowledge. Um, do, do you feel aligned with that perspective that that guy was talking about absolutely yeah so that's actually kind of what i do so when i go into corporates and i'm working with people who work in finance engineering um you know banking and they're kind of like yeah whatever like whatever mental health they're like they don't really care but as soon as i start explaining all of these things from a scientific perspective perspective they're all going okay that makes a lot of sense you know and they're like starting to sort of tick the boxes as to why they should be doing this, why they should be walking, why they should be hydrating, meditating, etc. Because now all of a sudden that wishy-washy sort of information from, you know, I'm not bashing HR, but, you know, people hear about meditation all the time. They're a bit mm. bored of it. But when they it's a box hear, tick. Yeah. There's no why. When how. they hear the science, they're yeah. like, you know, it makes more sense. And that's, mm. that's my goal is to take all of these things that we've been talking about for years and years and years uh, and, you know, like goal setting mm. and explain why it works. Yeah. And the thing that I love about that is I do talk about that a lot is that we have something called a cognitive bias. So if you believe something, especially if you have a strong cognitive bias, your brain will go around believe, try, trying to find ways to prove it. So if you walk out of the door and you say to yourself, I'm not, I'm not pretty or I'm not, I don't know, worthy or whatever, you will go through life trying to prove to yourself that that is true. So you'll walk into a room and someone will look away because that's what they would might do and you know and you think okay they're they're looking away because i'm not very good looking you know and that's what the brain does it wants to prove itself right so making sure that you don't repeat these things to yourself means that you can then go through life opening doors to different opportunities so that's called your cognitive bias we also have something called the reticular activating system which is exactly what he was talking about and that is that it essentially acts out as a filter so if you think about it our eyes can process about 300 billion bits per second so your eyes are taking in things all the time and it's called latent inhibition it basically suppresses things that are not important so i don't pay i've not paid attention to those glasses up there all day until now that i've just looked at them okay but they've been in your peripheral and you've been looking at them you just haven't paid attention and that's the same thing with the car so if you say to yourself i'm going to pay attention to all of the i don't know Volkswagens with a bang on the side. <laughs> You're gonna I haven't start. seen any of them. None. None whatsoever. <laughs> the Pure Sport V-Dub Golf with a dented upside. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're going to see them everywhere now. now you're going to see them. You will. You'll see them everywhere. You're going to start paying attention to all the VWs that have a big thing on the side. 
<laughs> because you've told yourself that and that is now what your brain needs to pay attention to. So it's really important to make sure that you're not setting these seeds of, you know, looking for things to prove a particular narrative. Yeah. Uh, it's it's something that I think is so important that when people are sharing concepts, they understand an element of like the how. And then that's going to allow that concept to go from being a concept to something that's actually impactful in people's lives. And I feel there's almost too many people going around bastardizing concepts without actually having the like knowledge as to how. And then it's kind of putting people off those things that are actually can be really meaningful, you know, like like meditation, um, like a routine, you know, like the amount of times I, I can honestly say wholeheartedly my life my well-being my happiness is so much better when I have structure and routine and I'm someone who personally I feel my personality resists structure and routine but when I have it I'm happier my life's better my mind functions more clearly whereas I think there's a lot of people out there that just go oh yeah like get your morning routine and your life's going to be better and you must wake up at 5am but it's like I think when we start to understand like why with the the meaning behind it and it's where I think someone like yourself who's able to take the science and the that like I said at the start that relatability but but why why is a routine and some structure so helpful to someone like me well firstly I think from what it sounds like is that you don't like someone else telling you but if it comes from you there's a strong cognitive bias there i do i think that's the resistance came because i was always told my whole life that i was bad i was naughty i didn't do well in school so i think i gathered this resistance because i think when you're growing up you refer to structure from like schools and it's like discipline right it's like handed down to you whereas when you're empowered to do it yourself it's different, isn't it? But sorry to interrupt, but I think that's correct. Yeah, well, that's kind of the route that I was going to go down. I think when you implement it, it means more because we learn mostly through emotion. So if you care about something, you'll more, be more likely to retain that information. Whereas if you don't, you're less likely to want to pay attention. And the thing with routine is, and I completely agree, like if I have a morning routine, whether that be waking up at five or six or seven, it doesn't really matter. But as long as you've got something in there, it sort of like has a sequence of events that gets you into that like forward motion of just ticking, ticking, ticking. And with that as well, like if you, I don't know, if you wake up and you wash your face first thing and then that feels good. So you've got, you know, a feel good chemical there. Now you're feeling, okay, good. Like the next thing is like ticking boxes. All my clients that struggle to get work done, I get them to do to-do lists and tiny minute ones where it begins with like make coffee, do this, do this. And that sort of effect of ticking things off actually propels them into then taking on bigger obstacle and bigger goals. This question might be a little bit out of your area of expertise and remit, but I, I have a belief that everything that we do has obviously evolved over like millions and millions of years to get to the point where we have, right? So why do you think these things, like having a routine and having that, was it the the negative bias that you said about earlier. Why do you think these are so ingrained in us? Like, what was it during the evolutionary period that meant that these were so important for us to have as part of our own kind of makeup, basically? I guess familiarity, because anything that's unfamiliar is a potential threat, and we had to survive, essentially. So that negativity bias is there to serve as a survival mechanism, right? So if you perceive things more negatively, because you probably had to worry about things. And having, I think, that structure in a world that was maybe so turbulent and different probably gave you a sense of safety, I'm gathering. Yeah, things like, you know, when you say you would notice something for the first time and you see it over and over and over again, whereas before you would never even notice it, why do you think that is part of your makeup? Because your conscious brain can only comprehend about 50 bits per second. Whereas your eyes can comprehend about 300 billion bits per second. Exactly. So it'd be quite mentally taxing if you had to pay attention to every single thing. Glass, cup, toaster, flowers. I didn't even realize those were there. You see? 
if you had to do that all day long, by 12 o'clock, you'd be so energy drained that you wouldn't have time to solve problems because that's what the frontal cortex is there for, the neocortex, the most uh, newest part of the brain, neo meaning new. It forms part of the frontal cortex, sorry, the frontal cortex forms part of it. That is there for problem solving, so cognitively demanding tasks, executive function, um, you know, abstract thinking. And that makes up only about 5 to 10% of your brain, so you need to save energy for that. That's why we have these mental heuristics, shortcuts that the brain takes that can save energy for that. So you wouldn't want to consciously pay attention to everything all the time, because otherwise you'd be allocating energy to those things when you could be saving it for potentially bigger is that where the phrase i forget what the percent is but they don't you only use like 10 percent of your brain is that where that phrase stems from i think so and that's a massive misconception because we don't use 10 percent of our brain we actually use 100 percent of our brain 100 percent of the time even when we're sleeping we're still using 100 percent of our brain so there's no part of the brain that's off um but i think motivational speakers and i think i actually listened to a podcast today we were talking about where it came from i think it was a book i think they use it as a as a as a way to get people to realize their potential so i can see the the notion of the statement you know we can do more with ourselves with, with our life and it's about pushing people to step out of their comfort zones and not be mindlessly scrolling and mindlessly consuming all the time but we don't use 10 percent of our brain we actually use 100 percent of our brain I've got a question that that's a topic that I feel very passionate about, and it's, and it's part of what it's a huge part of what inspired Pure Sport. Um, I want to get a neuroscientist perspective on instant gratification versus delayed gratification, and to give a bit of context to the question, like you know, I think with all the evolution and technology and uh, things that are available to us so quickly now. Um, and, and then also the way that like social media works, where it's just feeding you information constantly, online shopping, the ability to get food delivered just like that. Um, it's, it's almost, in my humble perspective, created like this habitual way of looking at life in a lot of people, whereas I feel like our parents generation and those before us those things weren't available to them so therefore almost like the the need to have some type of understanding or discipline around delayed gratification maybe wasn't as essential as it is now um and and a big part of why that's important to pure sport is because you know that stemmed into how people are looking after their bodies you know if you can't sleep people are, just want something quick like a sleeping pill or if you're down um, people, you know, automatically think the answer is to get anti-anxiety from like medication, um, and or or like you got pain and you quickly get a painkiller, and and there's this, uh, we're doing things that are, you know, amazing advancements in medicine and technology, but I don't think they're designed to be used the way that we're just constantly going to them, and and I and I would love to get your perspective on. Like, why are we, why is our culture just hooked so much in this instant gratification and what's that actually doing to, to our well-being? So from an evolutionary perspective, we are wired to actually seek dopamine all the time. The only difference is that however many years ago, even 20 years ago, it was much harder to gain that gratification, right? So you can't just scroll on your phone every time you're feeling a bit down and feel better about yourself. For those that are new to that or, or need a bit of understanding to dopamine, could you just elaborate in a brief way as before you carry on? Yeah, so dopamine is essentially your motivation neurotransmitter. It's not necessarily the reward neurotransmitter, but it is involved in the reward pathway. So the reward pathway or dopamine is there to help you gain things. So as evolutionary species, we would need to gain food, we would need to gain protection, we would need to gain safety. So that is essentially the molecule that keeps us alive. It, it, it helps us plan for the future and gain the things that we don't yet have. That's dopamine, essentially. So anything that's here and now uh, is more like serotonin and other neuromodulators, so helping you be happy with what you have right now. And it's very easy to get into this notion that we forget about what here and now is. And that's actually what I'm going to be spending this Christmas doing is actually reflecting on this whole year because I get myself caught up in this um, loop of being like, 
yeah, but I don't have that. Or yeah, but I'm not where she is. I'm not doing what they're doing. And it's like so damaging because obviously, you know, otherwise you're, you're constantly like comparing yourself. Another thing with dopamine is that we are designed to want it all the time. So it takes a massive amount of discipline in a world like today where we have dopamine hits everywhere to be able to sort of delay that gratification. So with every bit of dopamine, we then have pain that comes in. So dopamine, dop dopamine, pain, dopamine, pain. Think of it as like a sort of seesaw effect. So you get a release of dopamine, you then want more of it. So that comes in the form of, I want more chocolate. I want to go back on holiday. And the way to reset that balance is actually sitting in that boredom. How many so is the craving or the boredom element, the pain element? So the getting the thing is like the dopamine hit, which is the like the feeling, feeling good. And then, and then there's the, the pain, pain element, the like feeling of lack that you more. don't have that. Well, yeah, or oh, I need more. So then you go back to reward seeking and you have this like seesaw effect. And now the more the scale is tipped, that's when you go into the realms of addiction. You know, you need more dopamine, you need bigger hits, you need more, 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 more to make you feel just as good. And to reset that balance, it's actually about stepping away from that. So if you take five minutes before eating another bar of chocolate, you probably don't want it anymore afterwards, right? Because it's rebalanced. But how many people do you know can actually sit in boredom. I can't remember the last time I was bored. That's obvious because I also have a lot of things to do, but I know a lot of people just don't know how to be bored. And I get that as a question a lot. They, they ask me things like, can you write a post about boredom? And it's like, we should be embracing boredom because we are not bored anymore as you know a 2022 species because there is constant um, you know, stimulus everywhere. They say that allowing, or well, I've heard it be referred to from multiple um like creatives that our some of the most profound creative ideas of being from coming from a place of allowing yourself to be bored because it opens up you know the creative elements of your mind whereas if you're constantly avoiding boredom with stimulation uh you're not allowing that that sort of yeah ability to have have that free thinking come to you um and, and it comes back in my own experience the routine element part of my routine is I'll, I'll I set a routine in the morning where I'll I'll say I'm not going to use my phone up until this point because as you know, like running a business there's always emails to respond to there's always messages you know um but but not only running a business the addictive nature of social media these days your mind habitually wants to go on to check the inbox or whatever um and what I've noticed of if I ensure I stick to my routine of not using the phone for the first hour of the day, it sets my mind up in a way that when I do have, say I'm waiting in a queue for a coffee, if I had got on my phone and not stuck to my routine that, that day, my mind is so much more um, pushed towards not standing in the queue and just being in the queue. And allowing my mind to be bored, it will, my hand will automatically reach for my phone. And it's that reflexive, you know, and again, that goes back to the, the heuristics. Mm. Your brain's thinking, even subconsciously, I need to feel good, reach. And most people don't even pay attention to that. Mm. And it's crazy what you say about the, the high comes with the low. Because say, I know that my sleep will be better, but my mental health will be, my mind will be clearer if I switch my phone off at 9 p.m. and read before bed. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah, absolutely. But there's times where I get hooked in a rabbit hole and, I, and you know, it, I feel it is dopamine hits, chasing distraction or whatever. Um, and my sleep's not as good and I, I wake up feeling more agitated. And so it's like, I think, again, for me, it comes back to understanding the, the how and why. Because if it's just me trying to tell myself, oh, yeah, switch your phone off at 9 p.m. because that's a good routine to do. But if I understand your brain wants to chase the dopamine, so you're going to go down a rabbit hole on your phone. Um, but if you put some discipline in to stop that, the knock-on effect is going to be a happier, more productive, better life. And people like yourself providing the information to know why I think it's so impactful. So I hope, there's you know, that insight is yeah. meaningful to some people. Well, there's a couple of, sorry, you go. 
I was going to say there's, there's a couple of things to that. So one, if you start your day with a dopamine hit, that's all you're going to seek for the rest of the day. Okay, so you're already setting the tone. If you start your day with a cigarette, you will want cigarettes for the rest of the day. If you start your day with coffee, you're going to, you know, need coffee the whole day. Same with social media. So you're setting the tone with what your brain will want for the rest of the day. So that's one element. Second element is when we wake up, so we have these old trading rhythms. When we sleep, we go into deep sleep. So stage three, back into REM, uh, non-REM, REM. And those 90-minute cycles, they actually have suggestion that there's similar old trading rhythms throughout the, the morning. So when you wake up, you're going from uh, delta to theta, alpha, beta. Beta is your, your working brainwaves. That's where we're in right now. But theta is your low sort of frequency, so below 8 hertz per second. And that is where change happens. So that's why meditation works, because that is where change happens. So if you're jumping from being asleep, so delta theta, skipping that alpha brain state, going straight into beta, you're skipping those critical stages of the morning that are necessary to provide the sort of attention span for the rest of the day and they've done research on this so people that grab their phone first thing in the morning actually have shorter attention spans throughout the day and they're basically chasing this dopamine and are having lower levels of concentration so that's wild yeah okay, and then, i can honestly say to you that is my direct experience yeah, i know for a hundred percent that if i don't stick to my routine my productivity and attention throughout the day is hugely impacted and then the other thing is people always say to me, Nicole, I really struggle to sleep. What can I take? What can I do? And they want these crazy like uh, answers and, you know, uh, melatonin and stuff like that. And I, the first question I ask is, what time do you put your phone away? And they all go, yeah, okay. <laughs> and I don't have to say any, anything else. And they all go, okay, fine, fine, fine. I, they know, they know that that's why they're awake at night because they're sitting there scrolling till 10, 11, 12 o'clock at night. And then expecting to jump from beta all the way down to theta and it doesn't work like that it takes at least an hour 45 minutes for you to actually come down through all those sleep stages yeah what well, why do you think because a lot of the times habits and things that i'm doing that i know aren't in service of my well-being uh, but they're accepted by society you know like too much caffeine uh you know too much online shopping not eating right like, like, don't you know, I'm not saying these are necessarily accepted, but they're not things that people would look at and be like, you've got a problem. Like, like yeah. you could, I could buy stuff online, I could buy takeaway, yeah, drinking alcohol, not exercising regularly, like, you know, not having a routine or structure to my morning. But so, so all of these things you can go and no one would really look at you and be like, you're, you're not really functioning right. You know, if you can get through life with at a at a reasonable level where you're not like, you know, sort of unemployed or uh homeless or a drug addict, you know what I mean? Um but a lot of the time I feel when you talk to your loved ones or your friends or you really reflect on yourself, you know that you're operating ways in ways that aren't truly good for you. But why is it that we find it hard to look ourselves in the mirror? And be able to actually take those challenges on is it the way our brain wants to keep distracting or avoiding from doing the the hard work well yeah because it's hard the thing is you've got to pick your heart right because if you don't exercise you're going to feel rubbish but exercising is hard but feeling rubbish is also hard so which one do you want to be i bet it's easier it's easier to firstly sit in that mentality of like feeling sorry for yourself there's an element of that i get that with a lot of my clients where they admit that actually it's easier to complain about things than it is to make a change about them because a lot of the things that they do also define who they are so now they have to reshape who they are if they want to change this particular thing so self-sabotage a lot of the time comes to basically admitting that it's easier to be comfortable and complain about these things than it is to change them and also so is the blaming circumstances rather than looking at what you can truly do that might be hard to implement, is that just a habit that the mind has to avoid taking accountability? Again, like I said, the brain likes comfort, likes what it knows. Stepping outside of that comfort zone means more energy, more effort, more attention, more intention. And it's, it's a big energy sort of, um, uh, not tax, but energy transaction on the brain. Mm -hmm. 
to to change that and also it is easier to just scroll on instagram and, and feel good like that you know I, I fall into those pits as well i'm not i'm not you know um immune to any of We're these things human, right? <laughs> just it, because i talk about yeah. them so yeah um but what i wanted to say real quick i know you wanted to say something but about the creativity and the boredom and this explains it as well is so we have something called a central executive function you've probably heard of that and then we also have something else called a default mode network now those two networks are not they they can't in theory be on at the same time so your default mode network is your mind wandering state what are you thinking about when you're not thinking about anything so when you're driving washing the dishes in the shower folding clothes your mind is thinking about particular things that is where where creativity comes from but the thing is if you're constantly in central executive function on your phone uh looking for things on instagram social media the website you are googling things all the time talking to people then you don't have the opportunity to go into that default mode network and that's why people i have clients that actually work themselves to the bone because they don't want to be left alone with their thoughts but that is where ingenious ideas come from so actually when i get a proposal for a talk or something i don't actually plan them until probably the day before and it sounds like it's because i'm being lazy or i'm procrastinating but it's because i plant the seed and then i just let my brain do its thing so when i'm washing the dishes without pressure clothes, so it's it's accumulating the co the creative idea over time and then i sort of come up with these ideas as i go along instead of like trying to sit down and write it down because not that much comes out when i'm trying that's to cool, do that I, I feel like i that's how i like to operate too yeah but i now think we're very similar though because now i don't like resistance either yeah. <laughs> i don't like people i feel good about my way of doing it now because a neuroscientist says it's Listen, a good way <laughs> your brain will actually make better decisions when you step away from the problem so you actually make subconscious decisions all the time without even realizing it so you have a whole database of information that is sort of checking 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 to see what probability it needs to come to to have a particular outcome that's why people say when some of the best problem solving or ideas come to them when they're in the shower or they're walking yeah, the dog or that's they're right. out for a run that's why. right because yeah. the mind's free yeah. <laughs> but you wrote this down yesterday the question you asked me the other day i made a big note of them and I wrote this down yesterday. I said, sometimes when I have this big list of to do and emails to reply to and WhatsApps to reply to and just being real reactive, I find it very hard to then think of other things to do. I'm just being like to do list, to do list, to do list. And my brain doesn't have the opportunity to stop thinking about the things I need to do and think about the things that I could be doing and being creative with it. So that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So do you have a way of like how people could structure? Of course, it would be different. But like, because obviously you say in work and in your career, there's elements you've got to do, like, like you got to go and reply to certain emails or you got to input some things into like a spreadsheet that James really loves spreadsheets. Um, but then you want to ensure that there's that freedom to create and connect and problem solve. Is there like ways in which you can structure your day or your week? that can help yeah, with it yeah so that's actually what i'm doing at the moment is i'm looking at how we can have strategic breaks that don't involve using something that's having a, an external force on your brain state so for example people will scroll on instagram have a cigarette have a cup of coffee when they are in their breaks at work which means that they're still doing something they're still a caffeine's a stimulant acetylcholine is released when you're smoking that's a stimulant uh, social media is definitely not putting you in a state of creativity. So having strategic breaks where you can actually just completely put your phone away, maybe close your eyes, maybe go for a walk or do something that allows you to go inwards because the default mode network is in and the central executive network is out. So anything, I, I and I always say it, like nothing that has an external force on you, go in. So that's why... I get my clients to meditate and I put that in quotes and quotations because people get a bit caught up on what they should be doing. And all it is, is just closing your eyes and not having anything else to think about, but what you want to think about right there. And then, cause you'll be surprised what the kind of ingenious ideas you come up with. What one thing I've really thought about recently is what is the effect this is having on a developing brain? Because I think the three of us here are of the generation that phones were kind of in our like kind of mid teens to late teens and our brains were already kind of, already developed or in the later stages of developments whereas like i've got a nephew he's four and like a lot of these kids are being referred to as like ipad kids for i mean and they're constant like dopamine hits like he's addicted to like screens and stuff like that 
what do you think the long-term effects would be on kids who are, g- are growing up now and their brains are very plastic of just these constant like dopamine hits that we probably never had if we wanted some sort of stimulus we'd have to go outside and like fall Can, out of a tree or something yeah we had to actually make tree houses and yeah. like, skateboard and stuff yeah we? i remember when i had the nokia 5110 do you remember it had the little antenna all my friends had the 3310 and i was like not cool enough to have it my parents were like hell no and i was like i am not going to school with this brick so i used to leave it at home because <laughs> i was too embarrassed to have it in public probably was a blessing in disguise not yeah. having a phone attached to you yeah so we don't have the dates on that yet because it's still evolving and uh, we don't have any longitudinal data because we don't know the effects yet but and this is just my anecdotal opinion and speculation but if these elements are interacting with the dopamine system there are so many neurodegenerative diseases that are associated with the dopamine system predominantly parkinson's okay other neurodegenerative diseases like dementia that are all linked to dopamine whether that be dopamine receptor loss or dopamine dysfunction it's still the sort of underlying theme is dopamine so my biggest concern is that we are going to see a, a, a bigger number of neurodegeneration, which is remarkable because we already have so much of it mm. prevalent in our in our society now. And as I, you know, we've said we've spoken about this so many times, but ninety nine and a hundred cases in the UK anyway of Alzheimer's disease are not the inherited type. So if we have the ability to change. Us or, or drive ourselves into new neurodegeneration, and we have a potential way to maybe, you know, stave that off. Why wouldn't we be doing it? But we don't have the foresight to think because that is that is actually now that I think about it, the epitome of delayed gratification. Mm-hmm. To actually think about who you're going to be when you're 80, 90. Everything I do now is so that I can ensure that when I'm 70, 80, I'm still cognitively sound, that I'm still happy. Because neurodegeneration doesn't start in your 60s, 70s, 80s. It starts now, in our 30s, tau builder, beta amyloid plaques. It all starts sort of turning the cog now. Lack of sleep, tumor processing, all starts from what you do in your life now as a 20, 30-year-old. And, and I think like, you've just summarized there in, in the example of you know some of these cognitive, degenerative sort of disease and disorders and what we can be doing now to counteract that that underlying purpose is, is a huge driver for pure sport because we sell products we sell natural products that can help optimize people's function like bodies and minds naturally but we always say that's not the answer you know that's a supplement it's part of a lifestyle and a mindset shift which is, you know, preventative health measures, preventative uh, health habits and routines. Um, and like exercise is, is a huge one of those that you've referred to as, you know, the science behind exercise and how it can help with um, nerve growth, in fact, or BDNF. Um, but like, I think we're at this tipping point, I feel anyway, uh, in our culture across the globe where in human culture where there's been so much technological development and advances that that have happened like really quickly um and now we need to shift our attention back to like how do we find balance in life that's actually geared towards our well-being because i feel everything's been geared towards the next step in like technology evolution and then in our careers and in our progress and in our money and in our advancements and i think things have advanced so much that not not and i'm not just us as individuals but like the powers that be in the big corporations and the big political setups we need to start adapting the way the world works to align more to people's well-being you know which i Actually, playing devil's advocate, I do think that we are, but there's always going to be the groups of people that don't want to listen and they want to keep mindlessly scrolling. They want to, you know, we had that even before social media, people were uh, drinking, eating, not exercising, even though we knew some, you know, there's, there's always been that element. But 
and I don't know if this is a biased opinion because of my Instagram, but I do believe that Instagram is also changing. I see a lot of educational content. I see a lot of things that I learn on TikToks that people send me. So I would like to believe that even though, yes, there's a big detriment aspect to social media and the way that we are navigating the world right now with uh, smartphones, but we also have the ability to learn mm. on the go you know we there's a couple of things we weren't sure about quickly just google it you know and i do that all the time I, i'll be driving and i'll think of something i'll go oh hey siri um can you quickly google what this is and then siri will give me the answer while i'm driving and i'm like sick you know it's, it's kind of ironic how <laughs> social media is teaching you to use social media yeah. less <laughs> yeah which is yeah, yeah. but it, it's see social media feeds you what you look for yeah so, so you're a neuroscientist, you're on there, you're talking about this, you're sharing this, you're looking at these inspiring bits of information that's feeding it to you. There are people that is, they're just getting fed, you know. Uh, yes, but you just said it. You're in control to some extent anyway. But so I guess that's what I'm saying. I feel that there needs to be much more of a push in the powers that be to be sharing the type of knowledge that you are sharing. That's you know? why we have podcasts like this. Yeah, yeah. but <laughs> I, I, I feel times of the essence for the young, the next generation, but also look at the levels of um, mental health issues and depression. I, and I feel it's because not enough people understand that they are empowered to make their own changes because they're not, like, we're not providing that information from the top down. And, and what I'm saying, I, I agree with you. I think there's a huge progression from the ground up because people like yourself and people like us at Pure Sport are hungry to understand that knowledge and share that knowledge and better our lives. And that's what's making the impact. But I, but I also feel concerned that the, the, from the top down, the powers that be with the most money and the most sway to like impact the masses in a short period of time, they are more driven by greed or they're filling their own pockets than the the health and the well-being of humanity and i feel that's what i'm saying is like we need a yeah i don't want to get too like political and stuff but it's almost like there needs to be a shift like i, I, I feel concerned for kids yeah. young kids these days because i don't think with all that we're exposed to that's at our fingertips on phones all the ability to see you know um some some of the like really sad and challenging and depressing things that are available on the internet these days that we didn't have access to as young kids and and the pressures that that's putting on and the stress uh there needs to be a drive to equip people with knowledge to empower them to be like i can do things and i can understand things to keep my mind clear and happy and well you know? i do think it's a uh it's a good thing and a bad thing how quickly we can get access to information because if you go back say 200 years for you to find something out you would probably have to go and speak to someone within your little village and find that information it would take days weeks months to find out information and your pool of information was limited by those people you could talk to fast forward like 100 years and then your pool of information was probably limited to the library that you could go to but it would still take time to find that fast forward till now and these these things are gradually accelerating and the access to knowledge is just getting exponentially bigger because like 10 15 years ago you could get information by the internet but you had to go through dial up and there was a limited amount on there whereas now you've got fast broadband and i think the next step is going to be you're going to have so much information available to you all you have to do is think about it and your brain will be connected into the internet or whatever kind of form of information will be available then you'll have so much information at your fingertips but that instant gratification will also be there and I feel like these things are actually just going to get exponentially worse, even though the information is available for you to fix it. The kind of drive to get that instant gratification, that dopamine hit is going to be so readily available. It'll actually be able to be continuous. Yeah. Well, going back to energy resource allocation, which is obviously my topic of discussion at the moment in my research. But if you think about it from a neuroscientific perspective, your brain is not designed to jump from scenario to scenario to scenario. So when you go from here to the outside, your eyes and your eyes are a big sort of window into the outside world. They connect the outside world into your nervous system. You are perceiving the shift of you moving from this room down the stairs and into the outside. You're not, you, we can't teleport. 
So how can your brain know that you can just jump from place to place to place? So that's heavily taxing on the brain to be able to do that because that's what we're doing on our phones. We're jumping from, I don't know, the Maldives to pure sport back to me, back to, you know, and that's not normal. you're jumping to waking up and having messages from your auntie, your mum, your uncle, your five mates. I might have five mates, (laughs) uh, people to do work. Like... I'm sure the human brain was not designed to have easily access like that because, because I, when sometimes when that happens, overwhelmed. I, it's overwhelmed yeah. and then you start to feel guilty for not getting back to people, but it's all, I think what's so important and what I'm, I wholeheartedly agree with you. I was just going on my spiel about my passion about how the top with all their power is not maybe aligning to the, to the priorities that we need, but it's so essential that we don't let that stop us empowering ourselves and having these conversations. You, Nicole, sharing your knowledge and the amazing way you do us at Pure Sport, you know, trying to help inspire people by building our community and and giving that knowledge on how our products work and the lifestyle. Because at the end of the day, uh, like, if you can't take care of your own front yard, why bother trying to go out and change the world, you know? So um, it's the the best place to start is, you know, with yourself, isn't it? You know? Why do you think, so like mentioned there about how your brain, so that's an external stimulus. You're being like, right, I've just, my brain has just jumped from what's going on around me here to seeing someone in Hawaii. My brain is jumping around there. That's an external stimulus, but that's the same internally when you're in a dreamlike state, your brain can jump from place to place to place with no detrimental side effects that we know of. Why do you think it's different that an external stimulus is different to your brain doing that internally? Hmm. I'm not entirely sure, but I know that the reason we dream, for example, is so if you, they did this with AI and it's actually super interesting. So when they basically programmed the AI computer with a problem and a solution, uh, it could, it could find the answer, of course. When they then gave it a different problem, it couldn't come up with a solution because there was no, there wasn't enough chaos. There wasn't enough probability to come up with a solution to the problem. So then they started programming the AI with a bunch of probability uh, outcomes, so random scenarios, and then it could come up with any solution that it needed to. So it is actually thought that we dream really weird wild dreams because it's actually getting us ready for in case something had to happen so we would know what to do with it. Um, In relation to your question, that's a good question. I think the only thing I can think of off the top of my head anyway is that when we are jumping from thing to thing, we are A, in dopamine drive. We, we're not releasing dopamine when we sleep and we are not in beta brainwave when we sleep either. So perhaps we are able to, you know, get that information. And again, so I'm just, I'm thinking as I'm talking, but when you dream, it's, it's sort of, it's internal again with that default mode network. So it's all coming from internal thoughts rather than an external stimulus. Yeah, I kind of put you on the spot with that question. Eh? No, no, it's fine. I love it. And <laughs> I'm happy to say if I don't know something, so I can't, you know, I can't you know everything. But that's just that's just my thought process as I'm as I'm talking. <laughs> no, it's um the perspectives that you share and the, the the knowledge and the way in which you relate it is hugely um yeah, it's powerful stuff and uh we're so grateful, you know, to have a connection with you and um that, that you know you share in your passion for um you know natural alternatives and lifestyles and habits and and you're bringing that neuroscience element to it so we we're hugely grateful for your time and having you on here and and I know that I found that conversation really really insightful and I'm sure all the people that tune in will will do so too I wanted to do a real quick fire to to wrap it up we we have four mushroom products um reishi recovery lion's mane for the brain and cardiovascular cordyceps and then the mind body mushroom complex i want to focus on uh the three lion's mane ca- uh, cordyceps and reishi give me a quick snapshot into the benefits and the how in 10 seconds for each so cordyceps I'm really putting you on the spot here. Okay, so 10 seconds, cordyceps, go. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> so cordyceps, VO2 max. So anyone that's looking to improve their cardiovascular output, definitely cordyceps because it actually helps increase um, uh, angiogenesis, so blood 
blood vessel formation. The athletic performance enhancing mushroom, they say. Boom. Well, I was Ra going to start oh. taking it, sorry, and up my zone two and actually test my VO2 max, but I haven't got that far yet. We've actually got quite a few of our running athletes who have Doing done that. VO2 and they've seen some amazing results, but there is some amazing, there's multiple studies on humans that have tested before and after VO2 max on a dosage of cordyceps and seen between 7 to 11% increase so it's pretty amazing reishi quick fire reishi recovery <laughs> so reishi helps improve both the quality of your deep sleep and the length of your REM sleep so deep sleep is vitally important for growth hormone release um, and then REM sleep is important for testosterone and memory consolidation so we all need those hormones growth hormone and testosterone not just men women as well and it's really important in our cognitive function as well as other bodily functions so repair we also basically go through something called the glymphatic system so we have the glymphatic system which is basically a like toxin removal system in the brain that we activate during uh, deep sleep so stage three sleep and that is really important for basically ensuring that you're not carrying any um, toxins into the rest of your day you want to clear out the brain essentially if you will before starting out your day again the next day reishi recovery eh? what a bloody mushroom i can't live without it yeah no i know i actually took lion's mane the other night by accident uh instead of reishi because you know i was like half asleep and uh yeah i didn't sleep as well Tiny and oh and there's there's something other something very interesting about is it the non-room sleep cycle where that we produce the much needed testosterone growth hormone growth rem, rem, rem testosterone. testosterone tell yeah. us there are there are many people in the business world that don't get enough sleep uh, males and sometimes they can grow man titties tell us a little bit about that from a scientific perspective yeah well so i mean if you don't have testosterone you get um predominantly build up of fat around the stomach that's that's sign number one and yeah gynecomastia which is also known as man titties because that's that's what happens if you have so you a, must ensure that your REM sleep cycle is solid so that your body produces enough testosterone so you don't get man titties i have a business consultant when i told him that he was like i'm going to start making sure that i sleep there you go. Eight hours. But, but that's why it's so important like no one wants really wants man titties i don't no, think so it's like that's, but, but sometimes you need to understand like how you get man titties so that you can stop or, or counteract your man titties but if you so think about that's it. why neuroscience is <laughs> It's a pretty Keith. niche fetish, I think. Yeah. Man titties. <laughs> yeah. Not many people, I reckon. I'm sure there's still a fetish. There's definitely there's some. There's definitely a target market. But if you think about you've got eight hours of sleep and you've got 90-minute cycles and in those cycles you've got a REM sleep, if you're losing an entire two hours of sleep, you're losing an entire cycle of REM sleep, which is an entire cycle of testosterone release, which is, I think has been attributed to about 10%. Of your daily testosterone release which is quite a big number if you think about it because if you're lifting or if you're competing even if you're just existing working in finance working in corporates that extra 10 percent is like you know yeah. a big difference 10 between a lot man that was the slowest quick fire this is a guy <laughs> hey but I, i'm here for the quick fires that i'm now when the quick fires are not that quick because the info is actually sick i'm all here for and then lion's mane for the brain Lion's mane for the brain, my favorite one so far, although reishi has been like my number one as well. So yeah, lion's mane, obviously, as a plastician, I study plasticity, uh, increases BDNF, so brain-derived neurotrophic factor, so that is nerve growth factor, which increases synapti uh, synaptogenesis, the way that synapses communicate with one another and create new connections as well. And in a non-scientific way of explaining, why is that important? Because lower levels of bdnf have been associated with alzheimer's disease as well as depression and other uh, neuropsychiatric disorders so we have three different theories to depression one of them being inflammation and the other one being bdnf now lion's mane and reishi actually help with both of those modalities so if you can improve your inflammation and increase your bdnf you can basically ensure that you have improved mood and, and i've seen a lot of um studies on lion's mane in humans where they've tested a daily dose um and seen and tested cognitive function with a baseline test before and after along the way and they saw like really significant um increases in the cognitive function um and also there was tests on on um, mood and depression i think um 
I'd have to reference the actual research, but I guess that explained you've explained the 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 how. Yeah. Thank you. Well, I've absolutely loved the conversation. Um, I know James, James has got a BSc, so, uh, so he's technically a scientist. So um, technically. he he probably thinks that he already knew all this, but nah. <laughs> nah. Um, but huge thank you from us, Nicole. And uh, I'm looking forward to the feedback that we get from our amazing community after listening to this. But where can people find you um, if they want to know more? only have instagram i do have a linkedin but i don't use it so nicole's neuroscience with an s nicole's neuroscience and i highly recommend following nicole's neuroscience because the way that she breaks down the information is so absorbable and easy to understand and relatable so definitely give nicole a follow thank you so much thank you so much for having me i really appreciate it thanks for coming in